so I think the actual reports for Q4 will be important as they always are, but I think the forward guidance becomes even more important in this environment and not just whatever guidance they might provide on earnings per share so we can get a sense of whether the bar is still too high for 2023, hasn't come down enough, maybe has been cut enough, but specifically profit margins and to your point, the layoff situation. I'm Chris Hill, and that's Lizanne Saunders, the Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab, weighing in with her thoughts on what investors should be watching during the earnings season that just kicked off. I caught up with her last week to get her thoughts on the market, valuation, risk tolerance, crypto, financial independence, and a lot more. But I began the conversation by asking about her career path. There are people who know early in life exactly what they want to do for a living. But Liz Ann Saunders went to the University of Delaware and studied international relations. Not exactly what you would expect to be the field of study for someone who ended up being one of the most influential market strategists in America. So my first question was, back when you were in college, what was the plan? I didn't have a plan. And when you said there are people who know very early on in life exactly what they want to do and do it, I was decidedly not one of those people. I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. The The international relations degree really was a double major in political science and economics. That was the program of, of study my first, I think, two and a half years until they developed the IR program. And I knew that when setting up the double major because that represented the prerequisite. So in more practical terms, that was the the backdrop. And I felt that that was just broad enough that it kept lots of different avenues open, given I didn't know what I wanted to do. The only thing I really knew I wanted to do was live and work in New York City. So when I got out of undergrad, I, I my grandfather was still living in the city and I essentially just pounded the pavement, got connected with a, a entry-level headhunter and interviewed at numerous different firms across many industries and just happened to really connect with the people at Zweig Avatar and something spoke to me. And so I took that job and went to graduate school at night starting a year later. And while I worked uh, full-time, they paid for it. So that made the decision easy. And so I was there for 13 years and have essentially been at Schwab since then. So two, basically two companies in 37 years, which is not common <laughs> on Wall Street. Absolutely not common in general, and particularly on Wall Street. What was it in those early days that really turned the investing light on for you and made you think, oh, not only is this interesting to me, I think this is what I want to do? So what, what's interesting about the answer to that question is, you know, it, in advance of the first interview I had with Zweig Avatar, and then in between the, sec- the first and second interviews, I-, I did research on the company, on the founding partners, one of whom was the late, great Marty Zweig, which, of course, this was in 1986. So doing research then was going to the library on microfiche, you know, literally scrolling the wheel through newspaper clippings. <laughs> there was no Google, there was no internet. So it was a bit more of an arduous uh, task at the time. But I was fascinated by Marty. He was, for lack of a better word, he was very much a guru at that uh, time, was incredibly well known, had started one of the earliest ever, if not earliest, um, hedge funds, which is still ongoing, even though he passed away a number of years ago. This is why I met a partnership and there was 
uh, mutual funds. He had the best-selling investment newsletter uh, at the time. And the avatar side was the institutional money management side. And that's the side I started on. But I was always fascinated by Marty's uh, top-down work. He created the put-call ratio. He coined the phrase, don't fight the Fed. He um, coined the phrase, the trend is your friend. He developed numerous breadth-type models. There's this wide breadth thrust that technicians uh, follow. So even though I was ultimately managing money on the avatar side, I was always much more interested in the top-down, big-picture, 30,000 feet. And when I left in 99 to join U.S. Trust, which only several months later was acquired by Schwab. I was then quickly adopted by the parent company, as I like to say. And one of the things they wanted to do was create this position of chief investment strategist that had not existed at Schwab before. And they asked if I was interested. And that was my foray from essentially the world of bottom-up stock picking to top-down macro economic and market analysis. And that was 23 years ago. It's great that you were able to figure out pretty quickly what area of investing you were most interested in. And I, I want to stick with uh, the, the Schwab part of this for just a second, because I, I found this quote of yours from an interview you did a few years ago, where you said, most strategists make short-term predictions about the market, but that's not what we do. We think investors need to figure out where they are on the risk spectrum, and then we help them customize their allocations from there. We try to foster the notion of long-term discipline so that our clients aren't constantly changing their investments based on the short-term market prediction. And I you know, obviously love the, the focus on the long-term discipline and, and not basing things on short-term market moves. I am curious though, how much of a challenge is that in terms of helping people figure out their risk tolerance? Because in my experience, which is not nearly as extensive as yours, but in my limited experience, the majority of people tend to, out of the gate, overestimate their risk tolerance. There are some people who maybe underestimate it and they're too conservative uh, for their own good. And it's really a minority of people who can nail what their risk tolerance actually is. You're right. And, and keep in mind that I don't I don't work directly with clients one on one. So the the work that I and our team do, as well as on the fixed income side of our world and the international side of our world, is is very big picture. But it's a great question, and the way I often frame it, and the way I, I talk in broad terms to large groups of clients about it, is ideally you figure this out before the market helps you figure it out, which is, is there a narrow or wide gap between your financial risk tolerance and your emotional risk tolerance? You know, the financial risk tolerance is the arguably the easy part of the process where you figure out, you know, time horizon and age and maybe past experiences, tax bracket. Are you looking to just um, appreciate the portfolio or do you need to live in in part on the income generating from it, et cetera, et cetera. So those questions are generally easy to answer and and you can come up with your financial risk tolerance and then what a structure of a portfolio might look like. It's the emotional risk tolerance. And sometimes you don't realize if there's a yawning gap between the two, it tends to come because of um, a tough market environment that then has your emotions kick in and it overrides your financial risk tolerance. And that often 
leads to mistakes, perhaps in both directions, too much aggressiveness when things are going well, and then panic and, and fear, and then missing out on the eventual recovery. So that I think is, is it, you're right, it's the toughest part, but I think framing in an emotional versus financial risk tolerance. And I think sometimes investors, even without maybe a long experience of dealing with market volatility, is maybe think about other aspects of their life that might bring in the same concept where you can get a sense of, you know, does the heart act differently than the head <laughs> in other important areas of your life? Over the past year, let's call it, investors, and I'm certainly one of them, have probably paid more attention than previously to data points related to inflation, the consumer price index, the producer price index. There's so much more in the mainstream narrative now than they were really in the years prior. I, I'm curious how important you think they are in terms of everyday investors. And because of all that oxygen going to inflation over the past year, rightfully so, what is an under-the-radar data point that doesn't get as much attention that you think investors might want to start paying attention to? Sure. So, you know, the inflation data that we're barraged with these days is not terribly different data than has been the case in decades past. It's just it matters more because it's much higher. And the reaction function of the Fed is having a significant impact on the market. You know, as it relates to, you know, how does it matter to investors? Why does it matter to investors? Well, at the uh, at the market end of things, it's we're, we're in a don't fight the Fed kind of environment. We're in a unique period of time, actually, where to some degree, the market is fighting the Fed, or maybe put more precisely, the bond market is fighting the Fed. And the structure of the bond market now with the big drop in, in longer term yields is essentially sending a message that either the Fed is going to be able to kind of pause and ease policy sooner than what they're telling us they're likely to do, or the hit to the economy is more significant than what's built into expectations. And that's why you have such a, you know, inverted yield curve. So maybe it's the stock market is keying more off what the bond market is saying than it is off of what the uh, Fed is saying. That said, if the reason why the bond market is fighting the Fed is because growth is going to slow more significantly, I don't think that that's priced into the market. I think, you know, we're we're in a bear market. At at the worst, the S&P was down 35%. So, it's clearly not the case that the market has been whistling past the graveyard of all the stuff we're dealing with. It's just a question of does it get worse from here? The inflation data, you know, we we have seen better and better readings pretty consistently since the peak in in June. Not anywhere near yet to the Fed's uh, target, which is somewhat arbitrary, but it is what it is. That is the target, and for now, that's what they're saying. From a consumer's perspective, inflation is kind of a funny thing because everybody's inflation rate is different depending on, especially in this environment where the rent component of a metric like CPI is still going through the roof. Now, it's an imputed rent component and it doesn't really track the real economy rent indexes, things like Zillow and Redfin and RealPage, all of which have rolled over, but it takes a while for it to finally work its way into that CPI data. But if you are, if you're not renting, you own a home, but you're not paying a mortgage on it, an adjustable mortgage, 
I think, if, you know, example like my parents, my parents are elderly, 85 and 92, and they don't own a home anymore. They live in assisted living. It's a controlled increase. They're getting a big COLA adjustment with their social security. They're not grocery shopping. The meals are paid for. So they don't experience, they don't drive anymore. The kind of inflation that somebody who is renting or has a variable mortgage rate or is driving an hour to work and has to pay for gas and has to heat their home. So the reality is everybody's inflation rate is different. We just have these standard metrics that we use to uh, to measure it. I know you and your team at Schwab focus on macroeconomic data. I am curious, however, just in this month, we've heard layoff announcements from businesses like Amazon, Goldman Sachs, Salesforce. When that news comes across your desk, what do you and your team do with it? Well, here's one thing we, we, we've done with it that I think, and it kind of goes back to the second part of your question, which I didn't, last question, which I didn't directly get to, which is, you know, what, what, what sort of, what might people be missing or what are you looking at that's maybe not quite on the radar screen? So just thinking about the most recent jobs report, one of the specific metrics that, that comes out every month with the report that um, went down um, was wage growth. And that was what the stock market anyway seemed to key on. Okay, wage growth is coming down. That maybe not imminently gives the Fed the green light to start moving toward a pause or easing policy, but at least that's not continuing to, to accelerate. The problem with looking at that as a measure of wages is it's an average. And what's been happening very recently, to your point, a lot of the big layoffs are of people up the wage spectrum. The two segments within the Bureau of Labor Statistics breakdown by industry of the payroll data they give us in aggregate every month, the two in the negative column are professional business services and technology. So what happens when you take a larger swath of bigger numbers out of wage data? It brings the average down, somewhat artificially suggesting less wage pressure. Conversely, if you go back to you know, the April month of 2020, when we were deep in the worst part of the pandemic, everything was fully locked down, you know, 20 million jobs lost on a monthly basis. Wage growth showed that average hourly earnings was up more than 8%. No one in their right mind thought we were in a wage boom in that environment. It's just the numbers that were coming out of the average on mass were the lower numbers because it was down the wage spectrum. It was retail and leisure and hospitality and you know younger workers. And so that artificially biased the wage number up. You had the opposite effect when things started opening back up. You saw a massive plunge to incredibly low level of wage growth because a lot of lower numbers were coming into the average. So I would say that with all of this data, inflation data, wage data, jobs data, you've got to peel at least one at layer of the onion back. Um, in addition, wage growth is still healthy, although down a little bit, but hours worked are being cut quite significantly. So your wage times your hours work equals your weekly pay. Weekly pay has kind of been sinking like a stone. And it may be reflective of the unique environment we're in where companies, especially those that really fought hard to bring in skilled workers, and they may be more hesitant to let them go. But 
they are cutting hours. And that's indicative of maybe a little more weakness being reflected broadly via labor market statistics than if you just simply looked at a payroll number. And then last thing I'd say is the payroll statistics is part of the establishment survey. You can't calculate the unemployment rate from that. There's the separate household survey that's done. That's where you calculate the unemployment rate. That had a huge jump of more than 700,000 new jobs. They were all part-time. Multiple job holders are going through the roof. That is not indicative of a strong economy. And so what can happen is if you or I fall on hard times and we have to take on a second job, if we were part of the household survey, we say, I might say, yes, I, you know, I'm now working part-time at Target. That additional job that me, the one person has, could get picked up in the payroll survey as a new job, even though it's just a second job for economic reasons that someone with an existing job had to take on. So another example of looking at the, the details of the data, especially in an environment like this. I want to get your thoughts on the earnings season that's just about to kick off. Uh, but before that, we've been around long enough to remember not only the the dot-com implosion, but also the fact that there were businesses at the time that really were just kind of ahead of their time. You know, I think about a business like Webvan, where it's like, well, yeah, it didn't work in 99, 2000, but, you know, uh, internet-based food delivery is is all over the place now. I'm curious, are there are there things that you see right now that you have a similar thought where you think this isn't working right now? And it can be, uh, you know, sort of an investment device like a SPAC, or it can be a trend like uh, cryptocurrency, just to pick a, a particularly hot topic of late. Or, you know, are yeah, there things that you think? I think both of those are good examples. I, I think, you know, what, what SPACs allowed companies to do at a time when they were more popular and there was more interest is make forward statements. And that only is important for a company that essentially has no current profits, has no prospects of current profits, but they can, you know, they can generate some hype by making forward statements, promises, whatever you want to call them, which is very different than a company going through the traditional IPO channel, which is much more regulatory scrutiny. It has to be fact-based, basically historical analysis of, of things. And I think in conjunction with interest rates going up as dramatically as they have and the unleashing of price discovery, the return of the risk-free rate, I think that contributed to, to some degree, the demise of, uh, of SPACs. Price discovery also has kicked in with regard to things like crypto. And I've always been a skeptic. Uh, I've been a uh, not a not a, a loud vociferous skeptic. I'm not enough of an expert, but you know, known as a, a crypto spect skeptic. And and what I've always said, and I've always wanted to avail myself of of people who have much greater knowledge than I do. I, this is not a dogmatic, you know, dig my heels in and say this is nonsense. I, I'm not even going to listen to the other side. But throughout the years that it was was so hyped, the question I never I would always ask yet I would never get a cogent answer to, or even a consistent answer to, was what problem is this solving for? More people, I think, are asking that question now in hindsight, or what's the use case? That doesn't mean there, there isn't something brewing in terms of whether it's blockchain 
or more broadly digital currencies trying to bring the world of the unbanked into the world of being banked in some form or another. All of those are really important. But crypto became fueled by the the unique characteristics of the COVID environment and being in lockdown and, you know, free trading and bells and whistles and get rich quick and FOMO and <laughs> and, and and possibly some degree of fraud. <laughs> Uh, gee, I don't know. I hadn't heard anything about fraud in that space. I'll have to maybe do a Google search and see what you're talking about. Yeah, and some fraud. In terms of the earnings season, we're obviously going to get details on how holiday retail went, possibly more talk of layoffs or certainly questions on analyst calls of layoffs. What are you and your team going to be watching to give you an indication of where things are going over the next few months and possibly through the rest of the year? So, so I think the actual reports for Q4 will be important as they always are, but I think the forward guidance becomes even more important in this environment and not just whatever guidance they might provide on earnings per share so we can get a sense of whether the bar is still too high for 2023, hasn't come down enough, maybe has been cut enough, but specifically profit margins and to your point, the layoff situation. There, there have been so many high-profile layoffs either announced or started in the case of Goldman Sachs. And given that their financials are first out of the blocks, listening to see whether they talk about whether or, or affirm or, or uh, suggest that Goldman is more of a one-off situation and this is not industry specific more broadly. But many of these big financial companies obviously are really tapped into the consumer and can give a very good perspective on the consumer, the use of revolving credit, you know, balances, savings rates, and uh, consumption trends that they can pick up from what they're seeing on the consumer side of their business. So certainly in the early part of the season, that's what I'm going to be watching uh, for. Uh, but it is the case that right now, the expectation is that Q4 for the overall S&P, inclusive of the energy sector, will be a negative territory year over year. And I think right now, 2023, as a year, calendar year, still has a positive expectation relative to 2022. I think that's unlikely. I think we end up in 2023, or at least the first half of the year. So I think if Q4 is negative, I think at least a couple quarters thereafter are also negative in year-over-year terms uh, before we could possibly start to see some stabilization. So I think the path of least resistance for forward estimates is still down. I'm going to close by giving you a magic wand, and you get, <laughs> you get to wave it with this power in mind. You get to wave a magic wand to do one thing that improves the odds for the general public's path towards financial independence. It could be financial literacy in schools. It could be mandating that retirement plans are all have to be opt-out instead of opt-in. What are you doing with your magic wand to improve the financial picture for the average person out there? Well, I don't know that I would have answered it this way if you hadn't touched on it. The fact that we do not teach financial literacy even at the high school level, let alone earlier than that, I think is such a travesty. Uh, I remember in, I think my daughter was, she's my youngest, she's 23 now, but it was either freshman or sophomore year in high school. And she spent four hours one night kind of drawing and detailing a map of ancient Mesopotamia. 
And I knew at the time she had no idea. And when I say financial literacy, I made myself a total pest with the principal of my kid's high school about this. And she consistently would come back and say, Lizanne, we've got, you know, this stock picking club and this. And I said, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how a credit card works, how taxes are taken out of your paycheck, compound interest. What's an IRA? What's a 401k? The basics that we just don't teach and they, they couldn't be more important. I'm not suggesting get rid of arts or history or English or, but, but come on, <laughs> that, that should absolutely be a, a key part of the curriculum so that it's just embedded at a younger age and you don't get like my daughter, wait, I don't understand all the stuff that was taken out of, you know, her first real paycheck. <laughs> Boy, the Ancient Cartographers Association is going to be coming after you, Lizanne. I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> let's do both, okay? I'm not saying <laughs> let's not ever draw Mesopotamia again, but let, let's do both. And I said even let's call it life economics. You know, there was home economics when I was in high school and other trade programs. It's called life economics. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. Remember, the market is closed on Monday for the MLK holiday, so we'll see you on Tuesday. Tuesday.